And then I'm going to take you full screen. No, actually, I think I'll do it like this. So, all right. And I'm ready for your little promo in three, two, one. Hi, everyone. I'm author illustrator Ashley Belote, and I am thrilled to be a guest on the Big Time Talker podcast today with Mr. Burke Allen himself. Thank you for having me. Excellent. All right. Are you ready to roll? I'm ready. Here we go in three, two, one. Hey, hey, thank you so much for joining us for our Big Time Talker podcast. We drop new episodes every Tuesday. We're everywhere now. Spotify, iHeartMedia, wherever you get your podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and tell a friend. It's all brought to you by SpeakerMatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. Speakers or meeting planners. Have you checked out SpeakerMatch.com and found one another there on their marketplace? You got to do it, SpeakerMatch.com. Dot com. Today, we're talking kids and books, and we brought in an expert. My buddy Ashley Belote is an author and an illustrator, and uh, there's lots changing in the world of books, specifically kids' books, and we're going to dive into that with Ashley Belote. Hello. Hello, Burke. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here and chat with you, as always. You're so kind. You're too kind. Ashley Belote with an E on the end, if you want to check her out. AshleyBelote.com. She's got an appearance at the Art in Action at Pig City Books in Lexington, North Carolina on uh, May 6th. And uh, she'll be there to sign books. So I, I don't even know where to start. There's so much happening in your world now. So we're going to dive into... This, this new phenomenon that everybody is talking about out there, and that is AI. This artificial intelligence is changing everything uh, from the way that things are written to the way that information is processed online. And, and I wonder if you've got any inside intel uh, on how, how it's going to affect books and specifically your end of the spectrum, children's books. Yes, it's definitely a very controversial topic because as with everything, there are certainly certain pros and cons that come yep. with it. Yep. From my perspective as an illustrator whose career depends on my ability to draw things, you know, it is kind of a concern when you can just speak into a microphone and tell a computer to illustrate a little girl playing soccer and it can just do it for you. You know, it is completely different and it really can change the world, but in terms of illustrators in general, we are pretty safe uh, with our careers. I've taken a lot of seminars and attended some workshops and conferences where AI comes up a lot, especially this year. There was a big social media campaign where a lot of illustrators, we kind of banded together and posted like a circle with a line through it that said AI in the middle, like don't use AI art. And so there's a big, you know, there's a big controversy in the industry about it. But in terms of publishers, hiring illustrators that will stay the same. I've heard from several industry professionals that they will not go the AI art route specifically because illustrating a book is so complex. Unless you actually are involved in the process, there's no need for you to know any of the ins and outs that goes on, but there is a ton of back and forth that goes on between the publisher and the artist and the author during the, the making of a book. So for instance, if you typically you send in sketches of the artwork to begin and any changes are made at that point, that's because it's easier to change a sketch than it is to change full color artwork. So you kind of work out the kinks and sketches 
and then you move to full color artwork. So there's about three to four rounds of sketches. At least this is my personal experience. You send in sketches, then you wait for feedback and the sketches make the rounds at the publishing house and then you get feedback and then you change those things. A computer cannot do those things. So it's really a collaboration. It's a creative process and it requires the input of another human being versus in another type of system. So in order for AI to work the way that they would need it to, it would need to act as much like a person as possible. It would need to be able to talk back, brainstorm, think creatively. And while it can do that to an extent, it will not replace the way that illustrators communicate with their art directors. So that has put me at ease personally with it. A lot of my illustrator friends and I have talked about this and of course been concerned when it was really getting big. You know, the conversation about this really picked up earlier this year. So- Yeah, so I did ask questions and found some comfort in what I was hearing, because that's kind of the general that I'm hearing in the industry now is there's no way that we could get a computer to do what an actual illustrator gets to do. Now, it can be useful for people in certain situations. You know, technology is an amazing and wonderful thing that we have access to now. And you use it yourself, right? Yes, yes. I am a digital illustrator. I use Procreate and Photoshop to make my art. I do sketch traditionally. So I'll sketch with pencil and paper and then pull my sketches into my digital programs. So yes, I love using technology to better my art, but you're still the one making it. So I, like I said, I don't think that illustrators have anything to fear. They are still going to be hiring us to make books, just like I said, because you cannot You cannot emulate that type of brainstorming creative process with a computer. So I should point out that Ashley is an an illustrator as well as an author. So she does both. And and that's one of the reasons why we wanted to bring her in to talk about this. Um, Have you gone online and played around with any of the AI yet, either on the illustrating side or in the chat boxes to see how well it writes? And and if so, give me some feedback. So I've not played with the actual art making side of it. I have played with the the writing part just because I was at this seminar and they showed an example of it. So we got to, you know, kind of play around with it and see how it worked. It really is amazing how accurate it can be. I know that that a lot of college professors are now having to check papers against AI and yeah. I just heard that last week. So, you know, there's a whole new plethora of problems that comes with it. But what it can do is teach you, you know, if you if you use it to write something so many times, you kind of learn how it does it. And then you could potentially do that on your own. So if you're trying to look at it as a positive, you could absolutely look at it that way. So it does have some advantages. What it does that I think is useful is as as writers and as illustrators, even if you aren't writing stories, if you're writing academically, we all develop a certain style and a certain pattern to our writing, which is a good thing, but it's also, you know, it can be detrimental if all of the things that you're writing are starting to sound the same and you don't want to, you know, that's, you know, if you want your things to sound the same, like a style, that's totally fine. But if you'd like to change it up maybe, and just see what else your writing can do, then using the AI will use new words that you don't typically use. It'll use different sentence structures. It'll kind of challenge the way that you're used to doing things. So in that respect, I can see where it could be a positive thing. But yeah, if you just speak that you need a letter of recommendation 
and it just makes it for you. You know, I've heard that it can draw up legal documents, like drafts of documents, and it is it is truly incredible. So I think if it's used in the right way, it can it can definitely be an advantage. We're talking with Ashley Belote. She's an award-winning children's author and illustrator, and a new book coming out on July 4th. Happy Independence Day. Called Witch and Wombat, and uh, uh, we'll talk to her about that book and more. And we wanted to, to tap her brain for this new phenomenon that everybody's talking about: AI or artificial intelligence, which is beginning to to permeate into sort of every nook and cranny of society. When I went on and, and played with the writing piece myself, I, I saw some of the writing was fantastic but it only knows what it knows. And so when I tested it, it had information up through the middle of 2021. So there, there can be some really good writing, but also some huge factual errors. It can go sideways. So if you just hit do this and you don't proof it, you could really find yourself in big trouble. Exactly, exactly. It can only do, like you said, what it knows that it can do. There's, again, it's that collaborative process. It's the human ability to brainstorm. It's the human ability to write empathy and sympathy and write with feeling. And not the AI doesn't necessarily do that. It just cannot mimic what the human brain can do. The, the other advantage that you mentioned is that it does kind of get you started. You right. know, if you're having a really hard time getting something started, you just you know, speak what you want it to write about, it writes something. And then that can potentially be like a springboard for you to then build on. Uh, but like you said, it, it can only, it can only make what it knows and what it knows is what's out there on the internet already. And it's up to us to create new content. So again, that part of it won't go away, but we just need to use it as a tool versus a final product. I think. One of the things I like about what you said is at least I think I got this right, that you're not you personally are not defensive about it because that's what I'm seeing uh, an awful lot of us are people throwing up these walls. That's never going to take off. That's not a thing. Well, you know what? The genie's out of the bottle. So we best learn how to master the genie or we're all in, in trouble. So you and your colleagues you've talked with, you're, you're not necessarily being defensive and this is never going to work. You're more about how can we use this and mold it to help us. Is that right? Right. Yeah. You know, I will never say to someone, go use AI to make your art. It's great. That is definitely not a great idea. You should definitely make your own art. Where I really find it to be more of a tool is with writing, specifically if you're trying to write a press release. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes if you're a creative writer, doing academic writing, writing copy for a press release is extremely daunting. So you can always use it to help you there if you don't have a team of people doing that for you. So, like I said, as long as it can be used as a tool, it is kind of like COVID. It is part of our world now, and we've got to, we've just got to learn how to incorporate it if we want to. But again, if you don't feel like you need it, then you don't have to use it. That's what, that's the other thing too, is like, yes, these things are out there, regardless of what we say, people are going to use them. So you don't want to take a side that's going, I'm just not a very controversial person either. Um, I don't like confrontation and that. So if someone wants to use it and then they want to do that, that is totally fine. I personally probably won't use it as much, but if you can, like I said, if you can master it and use it as a tool to help you grow, it's like learning something online. You know, it's just a tool for, for you to better yourself. So as long as you use it in the right way, I think it's fine. 
Ashley is like, you do you, boo. You do um, you. That's exactly right. <laughs> so, so listen, just between you and me, nobody else is listening in today. Yes. Um, so I just saw this thing, though, where this guy put together, this music producer, a Drake song, and somehow he deep faked the whole thing, and it sounded amazingly like Drake. So it's some pretty freaky stuff that we're all going to have to watch out for. At some point, do you visualize, uh, you know, AI created movies that are maybe, you know, taken from your books? I think as long as there is a human hand involved, you know, CGI is a big part of the movie industry, 3D animation. There's a lot of tech involved there, but it is human driven. So I feel like as long as things are human driven, which they would have to be, you know, even if the AI is making the visuals and making the words, a person still has to prompt it to do those things. It's not just going to be like, oh, today I think I'm going to make a new Spider-Man movie and then just makes it, you know, a person right, right, has, right. To, has to prompt it, I think. But, you know, CGI and 3D animation, those were brand new concepts that when they came out, it was amazing, but I'm sure met with some hesitancy because it was new. Just as, you know, as people in general, we tend to be wary of new things. And a lot of people don't like change, including myself. And, <laughs> you know, it's just part of life, I think. But if it can, if something is created that we can use to better ourselves and better content and better the things that we put out into the world, then we should learn to use it as a tool for good we may have to circle back in a year and see how this plays out what do you think? yes we should <laughs> so ashley below is our guest today she's an award-winning children's author and illustrator she has a brand new book coming out july 4th uh that we're going to get into one of the things i also wanted to talk to you about is is sort of the timelessness of some kids books and what made me think about it one of the reasons i wanted to talk to you on the show today is there's a book that was written 50 years ago, and now there's a major motion picture coming out about it. It's the Judy Bloom book, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. You know, 50 years later, this major motion picture from a book that, you know, kids read religiously in the 70s and 80s, and it still resonates today. And I wonder, since you're kind of in that world, why you think some kids' books, specifically kids' books, are timeless that they you know have this longevity that you can't get away from that's a great question i think it personally i think it has to do with the fact that a lot of kids books are written for emotions versus mm -hmm. for a time period there's not a whole lot of things in a book that will date it because in a lot of kids books you don't see i mean you do see them in the background but you don't see like a ton of kids like looking at their cell phones you know in a kids right. book that would right. obviously plant that book in a certain time period. But now kids get sad when they drop their ice cream. A hundred years ago, kids got sad when they dropped their ice cream. So it's, they are, they're timeless emotions. Emotions are timeless. And because a lot of children's books have emotional lessons, they have early life lessons that everyone has to learn. You have to learn how to cross the street. You had to learn how to cross the street 50 years ago. It's their developmental things. And they are those early stages of life that we all go through to then get to the next level. And being able to tap into that very special time in a person's life, I think will always be timeless 
because those same issues are always going to be there. You know, kids 50 years from now are going to have to learn how to cross the street. So if there's a book that comes out about learning to cross the street, it's relevant now, it was relevant 50 years ago, and will be relevant well into the future. So I think as long as you can tap into that type of emotion, um, you know, emotional story or anything that you remember going through as a kid, other people went through it too. Even if it's a unique experience, there are someone out there who can identify with it. So I think the key to a successful book is really tapping into a kid feeling, a kid scenario situation, and then they will be timeless. And like I said, even if there are some like modern technologies in the background, you know, if you were writing a book that happened in like caveman times, there's not going to be an oven in the background, right. but you know, it's those, those types of elements, I think are secondary in terms of the actual content that would make it timeless. So yeah, I'm super excited about the fact that that's becoming a movie. The, again, the timelessness is something that everyone can relate to now in the past and in the future. You came along uh, after the, that book, mm -hmm. but that book also continued to have you know strong readership oh, yeah. all the way through. Did you read any Judy Blue books when you were a kid? I did. I did. Yes. That's why I'm so excited about this movie because I remember reading that book and it's, again, it is timeless. I was in the fourth grade when I read that and I started to read longer, you know, that's when I started to read longer books and I was a big Judy B. Jones fan. Uh, that was that was one of my favorite series. And you remember those things. They are part of your childhood, which is the other reason I think books are so special is because you when you look back on your childhood, they're such formative years and you remember so little about right. those years. You know, right. you've got certain selected memories that were moments that truly stood out to you for one way from, you know, for one reason or another. And a lot of my memories, I can remember movies I can remember books that I read and I can remember certain big deal events like birthdays and things like that. So books are a huge part of our culture as children. And that's why I think it's so important for children who don't have a ton of access to books to get them because those memories are so special and TV and movies, those are really special moments as well, but there is nothing like curling up and reading a book that really can make a, a lasting memory. So books are timeless in and of themselves and the memories that they create are timeless as well. That's one of the things that I think is so great about that initiative that Dolly Parton has started, that Imagination yes. Library. Um, yes. And for folks that are not familiar with that, because you're in that industry, explain what, what Dolly Parton is doing with that. Yes, it's great. So you sign your, your child up, I believe it's zero to five years old. You sign up with the with the organization and they send your child free books. And it's wonderful. It is an absolutely amazing program. She has given books to, by this time, millions of kids, I would imagine. And it's, again, it's so special because life is expensive. Living is expensive. There are doctor bills. There is food, housing, you know, at school. There are so many expenses that you have to think about. And sometimes you can't families just can't afford books. And what she has done is really kind of breaking that barrier and providing books for kids who need them. Because picture books not only serve as entertainment, they serve as a kid's kind of first introduction into visuals that they get to sit and study. Because TV, uh, I think TV is also a good thing. 
because of the visuals and the, the visual literacy, because kids read through pictures first. You know, you can tell what's going on in a picture before you can read the words about what's happening in the picture. Right. So I, yeah, so I think that TV has a good place too, but with books, it's still, and they can sit and they can look at it and they actually get to start thinking critically. And if a child doesn't have a ton of access to books, they're kind of missing out on that developmental stage, regardless of if somebody's reading it to them or not, they can just sit and look at the pictures and they can kind of make up their own stories. So it's really a great starter for their imagination too, which again, circles back to Imagination Library. It's, it's truly a life-changing organization and it really does give kids a leg up who can't normally have those types of opportunities. Yeah, you think about that and, and you know, she said part of her inspiration was growing up in, in the mountains of East Tennessee, but, you know, I grew up in Appalachia as well. If, if you're a poor kid in Appalachia and the mail comes and you get a book in the mail, I mean, how great would that feeling be, you know? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There is nothing like it. I have experienced this. I have done a few school visits in partnership with a few nonprofits and they have funds to purchase books. And so when I, when I partner with a nonprofit, if they purchase books for all of the kids in the classroom or school that I'm going to, then I'll do a school visit for free with them. And it was so much fun because I did one actually in um, Berkeley Springs, West Virginia earlier this year. And it was so much fun because I did my little presentation. Then afterwards, as the kids were filing out, I got to hand each of them a copy of the book and they were elated. They were so excited because it was their book. They got to take it home and I signed, I signed all of them and every single kid that I handed a book to, they gave me a hug and they said, thank you. And they were so sweet and excited. And that, that type of feeling you cannot get by doing anything else. It was truly magical to see how enthusiastic they were and how grateful they were. There's a certain stigma that especially started kind of with my generation. I'm a millennial that we're entitled and selfish and like that, but there's so many kids out there who have nothing and to help them is truly a gift and it's very special. So I have, you know, certainly experienced that firsthand and it's lovely. Yeah. That's gotta be a great, a great feeling. Would, would you say that that is one of, or, or maybe the best parts of your job? What, what is like your favorite thing? Oh yeah. So obviously the illustrating and like making books is number one, um, because that I just, I feel so lucky to get to do what I love so much. It is not like work at all because so I when love you sit down to write or to draw, mm -hmm. it's still as fun for you. You're like, oh, oh yeah. I'll draw in my spare time too. I, I will draw like my perfect day is to like sit in a room by myself and just draw the whole time. And then of course, you know, get a snack, but because I can just keep drawing. I love it. I could literally sit in the same spot and draw forever. It is truly a, a passion that, like I said, I'm so happy that I get to do this as, as my job. But second to that is, of course, sharing my work. You know, it's, it's really interesting because when you make a book and it's published and it's sent out to stores and it's sold, you don't get to see people's reactions when they buy it. Right, you know, yeah. if you're like yeah. singing a song to someone, you can see their reaction like, oh, we like it. That's really good. But if someone buys a book in a store where you're not there, you can't see them like take it, be excited and happy. So anytime that I get a chance to go to an event or do a book signing or a school visit, I do it because it is so fun for me to share something that I'm so passionate about with kids because 
being an author and an illustrator, you, you hear about it more now than you used to, but you don't necessarily think of it as a career choice in, ter- in, in comparison to other jobs that are more typical. Um, you know, there are certain pros and cons that comes with it, but if you have a true passion for art, you can absolutely make a living being an artist. And just like with any other career, when you first get started, of course, you're going to have to take jobs that you necessarily don't want to do. You're going to have to take side jobs, but you have to do that with a lot of other career tracks too. It is certainly not just art. So the the stigma of the starving artist is something that I have never been a, a big you know supporter of, obviously, because art is just as hard and there's just as many opportunities in art as there are with other types of careers. So the there there's usually like one kid in every class that's like the designated art kid and I loved being the art kid and you know if if you go to a school and there's 25 kids in the class and only one kid actually hears you and is like oh that makes sense then it's totally worth it because sometimes the art kid gets overlooked because you know there's there's a ton of opportunities for people to go into school so I I just love going and speaking to to everyone but then specifically, you know, picking out the art kid. It's very obvious. I have like an art kid radar in the room. <laughs> and like, <laughs> it's so fun because part of my, part of my school visit program is I'll go into a classroom and typically I'll read a book that I've worked on and then show the kids kind of the behind the scenes process of sketches. And if, if I'm talking about one that I wrote and illustrated about the manuscript and editing and revising Um, And then I will teach the kids how to draw one of the characters from the story. And as soon as we do that, I can immediately pick out the art kid. I'm like, oh, there you are. Sometimes there's a couple of them. Uh, But what's really fun is that some kids who aren't art kids find that they have some talent or passion or they want to make they want to make more art and then they can become an art kid. So it's it's just prompting them to potentially bring out something that's inside that they haven't really experimented with. So it's, it is overall an extremely special process that I love. So yes, that is a huge job perk. I love hanging out with, with my kiddos. So <laughs> Ashley Belote is our guest today on the Big Time Talker podcast. Check her out at Ashley Belote. That's B-E-L-O-T-E.com. And uh, if you want to come out and meet Ashley and you're in North Carolina, she's appearing at the Art in Action event at Pig City Books in Lexington, North Carolina. I think that's the 13th of May. Yes. All right. Very good. Um, you, uh, you go out and you do these events and you just talked about spotting the art kid. Yes. Um, and obviously you're pretty good at this. You've won a bunch of awards. You've got these major publishing deals as an illustrator and an author. How much of being an artist is is a gift that you're given from your creator versus how much of it is a learned skill? That's also a great question. I think that this is definitely a passion-driven business. Right. I knew from my earliest memory that I was meant to be an artist. I have been very fortunate in that way that I didn't know exactly like what type of artist I would be, but I drew all the time. I don't really like anything else. <laughs> I I love drawing. people apparently because she wants to be by herself all the time. <laughs> um, I'm so kidding. <laughs> I'm called like, you I'm out. Like, called you out. 
That's me. I'm like a hermit who lives upstairs that comes down for mealtimes is what my describes me as. Yeah, it's it is something that I I have always known I would end up in the arts in some form or fashion. And as I as I moved through school, it became more and more apparent, you know, my path was kind of leading me towards illustration. Um, I started out in fine art, actually, and I learned a lot of fundamentals that every artist needs to know. And then I really took those fundamentals and kind of applied them and went the the illustration route. But I think that in terms of in terms of what I get out of it, obviously it's passion. So I have a talent for it because I've worked at it so much. So if someone wants to be an artist and they don't have talent, it is definitely something that you can learn to to a point. You know, there's a lot of people who appreciate looking at art who become art dealers or become bloggers about art. There's book bloggers for people who love books, but don't necessarily want to make books. So I feel like if you, if you want to be a creative person, you, you kind of are given that because you have, it's just a, it's a natural passion that you build on. Now, if you have a friend who's an artist and you're like, that would be so fun. I really, really, really wish that I could draw. You, right. can, learn, you can learn certain things, but it needs to, it's so hard. It's so hard to, to work in the industry because you've got to be so passionate about it that it does not, it doesn't pay you first. So that kind of weeds out the people who are truly passionate about it versus the ones who just want to do it. I think. And a lot of people just want to do it as a hobby, which I think is, is lovely as well. Art is a wonderful hobby. It, coloring is extremely relaxing. Painting is really nice. And it is fine to just want to paint for yourself too. You know, if you just want to paint just to paint, I think that is fantastic. But if you want to try to do something with it, you know, nothing is impossible. You can really do what you set your mind to. You just have to have a passion for it to be able to set your mind to it, I think is what I'm saying. It's, it's really hard because like I said, it does not pay you first. Uh, you really have to want it and you have to be willing to sacrifice it and do things to get to, to where you want to go. But again, that is with everything else too. You have to make sacrifices to make your dreams come true, regardless of what industry you've chosen to go into. Yeah. I mean, what is that saying that, that if you do anything, you know, 10,000 hours, you get good at it. So I think what I'm hearing from you about uh, being an illustrator, an artist, is that if you've got that, that nugget of passion that makes you just want to do it all the time, well, then yeah. you're going to do it a lot, which yeah. you're, you're polishing that stone and you're going to get mm -hmm. better at it. And then you can augment it with education. Like you, you took some yes. pretty high level illustrating classes, but you were already into it, right? Yes. Yes, it is. It's like with everything else, whatever you're interested in, that's what you should go for because that's what you're passionate about and all dreams, no dream is going to pay you first. You have to chase it. And it's, it's really important to understand that going into it. I was think. there a time you got discouraged and you meant you thought, man, I'm, I'm not ever going to make it. And this is a fool's errand. I mean, I don't know that I would go that far. There were certainly times where like, it's frustrating when you try and try and try and nothing's happening, but it, it's more like fuel for the fire versus I'm just going to quit kind of thing. It's, 
well, if this didn't work, then I'm not doing something right. And I need to learn how to change it. And the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators really helped me a lot. That is a wonderful children's book organization. They do conferences, they offer online seminars, classes, mentorships, you name it. And it is a true inside look into the industry. And that really, really helped. I joined uh, back in 2015, 16. And that's when I really started to learn specifically about children's book illustration. There's a lot of different types of illustration and there's a lot of different types of art too. You know, if, you, if you're passionate about art in general, like I was saying before, there's so many options. You could do advertising, you could do marketing, you could do layout and design. You don't have to actually draw to be an artist. There's so many, so many different ways. So if you're just a creative person and you just don't know what type, just try everything. Try, try drawing. If you don't like it, try painting. If you don't like that, try design. If you don't like that, try marketing and advertising using visuals, photography. There's so many options. So I would never discourage someone from trying um, because like I said, if you've got that nugget of passion, it will, it will see you through because having a, a creative passion is extremely strong, at least for, for me, it is. Now you, if I understand this correctly, and I may have it totally wrong, which that does happen on occasion. I don't think uh, so. <laughs> it happened once in 1974. Um, so you, you're an author and an illustrator. When you are wearing your illustrator hat, then an author who has the words, the text, or the editor comes to you, and then you have to visually come up with how to, to translate that. Do they give you any kind of guidance, or is it all, hey, look, here's what the book is about. You go and do you. How does so it, it is. it is kind of a, it's an interesting situation. So you touched on it briefly. There's this thing in, in the industry called the art note. And the art note is very controversial. An art note is when a writer writes a manuscript and they have an idea or there's something visual that they need to explain to an editor reading it. Because when you sell a book, if you're, if you're author only, you're selling you sell a, book, a book to a publisher. Yeah. When you're selling a book to a publisher, they, the editor reads it and there's obviously no art with it if you're the author only. So you have to either write in a way that gives them enough visuals to understand it, or you have to put in what's called an art note. And an art note is sometimes like a visual stage direction or a visual, a quick bracketed line underneath of a line of text that explains what's happening. Typically, art notes are discouraged because the author should not dictate to the illustrator what they should do. The illustrator, that's why they keep us separated. The author and the illustrator, if they're two separate people, uh, we don't really talk. And that's because the publishing houses want each party to bring their own creativity to the table. So if the author has a ton of art notes, there's very little room for them, the illustrator, to bring in their own ideas. Now, art notes can be used if it is pertinent to the story moving forward. So let's say, for example, the text is something like Sally tries to cross the street and there's going to be a car that's coming, but you don't want to put that in the text. You put an art note, there is a car coming down the road. That is an important art note if that is somehow pertinent to the, the story moving forward. 
An art note as an example that is unnecessary is Sally is crossing the street. Art note, Sally is wearing a blue dress and a yellow hat. No, we don't need to know that. The illustrator should dictate what, what the outfit is. Again, unless it is somehow pertinent to the story. So when I get a manuscript, um, for example, when I was working on Frankenslime, I'm the illustrator of Frankenslime and it was written by author Joy Keller. There were only like two art notes in all of Frankenslime. And so they basically handed it to me and said, do, do this. And so they do kind of set you loose uh, like that. And then you, you send in your sketches, you get your ideas out, and that's when you send them into the art director. And then you start having a conversation about what's working, what's not working, what could be better, um, what they love. And then at that point, if they have any ideas that they think could improve the story in terms of the art, then they share them with you when you have that conversation. So it is kind of a blend. It is a, a lovely, creative brainstorm process, and it's very collaborative. So it is certainly a team effort. <laughs> so what happens though, if, you know, because you've been turned loose, right? And, and you've got the text there to draw from, but what, what happens if, if you are 180 degrees opposite of what this author has in their mind? If they're visualizing, you know, the, the kid is going to have a red dress and you give the kid a blue dress or no dress. And it's a guy versus a girl versus a dog versus a wombat. Uh, you know, it, it seems to me this is rife for misinterpretation and for you to to really get at loggerheads with an author. Yes, that's the risk you run when you get into the business. <laughs> yeah. Has yeah. that ever happened, though? I mean, I'm sure sometimes they go, wow, this is even better than I thought it would be. That's and I love what you've done with it. But have they ever come back to you and said, you know what, uh, you missed the mark here completely. And if that's happened to you, how do you not take that to heart and internalize it? So it's, it's not necessarily happened to me to that like extent, um, with, with my work with the larger houses, like with Frankenslime, um, I had, I had a character sample, but before a publishing house chooses an illustrator for a book, they do some serious vetting. They look at the website, they look at the social media, they look at the style of art that they want. For and do the they book. send that over to the author? So they kind of, they narrow it down and then they send the author some choices. Sometimes though, they will ask the author if they have any, um, any illustrator suggestions, which is nice. So they kind of send in some names and then the publishing house team makes some, you know, sends in some names and then everybody, they all look together. The publishing house team looks together and they'll kind of narrow it down. And of course they do let the author weigh in with an opinion. And with, with me personally, you know, on my website, I had a lot of, you know, detail oriented art and some fun character things. And they wanted that type of style for this book. So they kind of, they, they can't, they don't avoid it completely, but they kind of avoid those, those types of scenarios where the artist completely misses it because they do so much background. Got it. Get so much background. Yeah. So they kind of, they're essentially setting themselves up for success. So but when I was working directly for authors, so I come from an independent publishing background. Um, when I would look at projects to attempt to, to look at taking them on, I would do a lot of vetting of the author because I needed to be able to make sure that we were going to get along because yep. it's, it's really, really hard 
to have two creative people who potentially have two creative visions. So I made sure to tell them that if they wanted me as the illustrator, they should look at my website. Well, that's mostly how people found me was through my website, but I made sure that they knew that the art for the book was going to look like the art on my website. That is the type of art that I make. So if you want something that looks different from that, you should find an artist who makes that. Right, right. So if they're looking yes. for somebody that draws like superheroes, right. you're not their girl. Correct. Correct. I am your girl for cute stories about spunky kids and funny birds and stuff like that. It's that is that's, you know, my lane. And that's the wonderful thing about the illustration business is that, yes, there's a lot of us and yes, it's competitive, but everybody is different. Yeah. So there's there's someone out there for everyone and in terms of their art. So I think it's really just finding the right story with the right art and you kind of take the people out of it. That's, you know, that's kind of how it works in, in the bigger houses. And they do keep you separated so that there's no type of influence one way or the other. And, but if the author or the team does have a big problem, then you just work it through. You know, they've looked at your art, they know what to expect. So they know that if you didn't, you know, nail every spread on the first round, that all they have to do is give you some direction. And something that an art director did for me one time, um, we were talking about a, a certain color palette that I was using. And they're like, oh, we really like what you're doing on this image from your website and sent me a screenshot of it so that they could show me what they were talking about. So things like that, you know, they, they know to an extent what they're getting, but they know also what they can get you to do. So it's, it's really just a lot of background research. You think that this big, uh, long list of illustration projects that you did before you started writing, do you think that made you a better writer or like a different writer? Because now you're, a, you're an illustrator first, but you also write these things. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, it really did. You know, I was a creative writing minor in college, but I didn't know that I could write children's stories. <laughs> it, you know, it's just when you're in college and you're thinking about these things, your, your mind doesn't necessarily go there first. So what I would do was write poems that were definitely for kids. Like looking back on my portfolio of writings, I was like totally meant to be in the picture book business because every poem that I would write was like cute or funny. And um, so you do have that kind of inherent style, but working on other people's books for a long time, I did, it did kind of help me fundamentally in terms of writing because there were things about certain stories that I would like, but more importantly, there were things about stories that I did not like and that were not successful. So I knew that, you know, when I did start to write, I wasn't going to do things like that because they just didn't work. When specifically when you're writing for a, a picture book, if you're if you're the author illustrator or even just the author only, you've still got to leave room for the art to tell part of the story because a picture book is really meant to be a blend of art and the story itself. Right. So the author doesn't want to over describe things because you got to right. have that visual piece. Correct. Yes. And you only have about 500 words. So every word is very precious and you don't want any extras in there. So you don't have to describe the blue shirt. That's two solid words you can take out immediately. So it's, uh, it's, it's really a neat specific process, but it's, it's kind of like just piecing the puzzle together. And it's so much fun. You don't have kids yourself. Um, so is there a process that you go through to sort of put yourself 
in a kid's frame of mind? And, and, and second question, so most of the books that you write are for like elementary school age kids, right? Yes, they are. I'm kind of pre-K area, pre-K elementary. Oh, pre-K. So so Little. even younger than mm -hmm. elementary school. So, yes. you know, I've been accused of being very infantile in my thinking <laughs> many times. But I think that's a dig at me. Um, but how do you do that? What do you do to get into a kid's head? Or do you do that? I totally do. So because I don't have kids yet, I really rely on my experiences from childhood. You okay. know, being in that kid state of mind, I don't really feel like I have ever left. I still feel like my six-year-old self who would color on Saturday mornings while watching cartoons. And I still do that. <laughs> and uh, that's just, that's just me. No personal growth here for Ashley. I know. I have very, yeah. Inner PJs, <laughs> eating Captain Crunch, watching cartoons, and, and yes. perhaps occasionally wetting her bed. We don't know. We don't want to get into that part. You know, there are certain things that you shouldn't talk about in public. But, <laughs> but yeah, it's like, that's where I'm comfortable. That's where I'm comfortable mentally. I love thinking about those days. And because they were so special. And you had so few responsibilities, but the responsibilities that you did have were everything, you know, and now like there's so much, you know, you have to pay your taxes and you have all these things that you have to do, but. And you that, put all that aside, then you peel that onion back and you just yeah. get rid of all the grown up stuff and all the news yes. and the Absolutely. stress of the world. Yeah, you really do. Because in order for me to present a book that a kid is going to like, I have to be in a good mood and thinking right. about taxes puts me in a real bad mood. <laughs> I don't like to think about that. So yeah, I really, I kind of separate myself from my current self and kind of revert back to six-year-old me and think about the problems that I had then and the things that I liked to do then and specifically the thoughts that I would have then. I I feel very in touch with my inner child because I I loved being a kid so much. And kept that, kept that period of my life alive through my art. And it's, it's really fun for me too, because I remember like my favorite books going through and looking at everything and being like, Oh, I love this illustration. I love this picture so much. And then I would go draw and now I get to make pictures for kids to look at. And it's so special. So it's, it's definitely something that, um, you know, when you're creating for kids, you've got to really put yourself in that place. Or if you can't put yourself in that place, then observe kids who are in that place. It's extremely important to make the book kid relevant and kid friendly. And it's still like, it, not to say that I do it right every time. No, sometimes I'll use words that a kid's not going to understand and I have to change it. Or I'll yeah. put in like a line that sounds like an adult. But that's what a critique group is for. I'm a member of a couple of really good critique groups. And if anybody out there is looking at getting into writing, join a critique group is probably one of the best things that you can do for yourself. Um, just because it's so nice to get, and they should be, it should be a group of people who are not your friends first. Yeah. So I am now friends with my critique partners, but we were not friends before we were critique partners. Did so you want were, people to be honest with you? Yes. Yes. Your friends are while they can be honest to an extent, they're still going to tell you that they love it, you know, but, and they, they also need to have the perspective of, of the audience that you're writing for too. So you've really got to just kind of join, um, join a group of people who have a similar interest in the, in your genre. 
And it really makes a huge difference because someone else can see those flaws immediately in your work. You can see those flaws in other people's work immediately, but you can't see them in your own sometimes because you're so close to it. So definitely join a critique group. I've really grown a lot uh, from being a part of those groups. I love it. The book is out on July 4th, Independence Day. And you'll want to be sure to grab one for your little one before Halloween time. I love it. Witch and Wombat from Ashley Belote. She's online at ashleybelote.com. And she's appearing at the Art in Action event at Pig City Books in Lexington, North Carolina, May 13th. Thank you for being here today. so much for having me, Burke. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. Our buddy Ashley Belote, we grilled her about AI and Judy Bloom and lots more. AshleyBelote.com is the website. Thank you, Speaker Match, for sponsoring our Big Time Talker podcast. Wherever you go, whatever you do today, make it a great day. Bye, everybody.